This show is sponsored by the Back End Banter Podcast. Stick around till after the news to hear more about that. This is Cup of Go for Friday, October 27, 2023. Keep up to date with the important happenings in the Go community in just 15 minutes per week. I'm Jonathan Hall. I'm Pascal Bertrand. Hi, Pascal. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. Thank you. It's uh, a pleasure to be here. Glad you were able to fill in for Shy while he's still away. Let's talk about some news. So there's no official releases this week, but we have a lot to talk about with regard to proposals because Russ just published this week's proposal minutes Three hours ago, I was still sleeping. The first one, and I think a big one, is that the proposal we talked about, I don't remember when, several months ago, I think, about the new syntax for the range keyword has been accepted. Home, home on the range. So we're going to now, well, soon, be able to range over integers and over function. Uh, have you been paying attention to this one, Pascal? What do you think? I've been paying attention. I mean, it's uh, the range of integers is something that we definitely need. Mm-hmm. It's simple. It's clear. It's unambiguous. Uh, we want it. Yeah. The range of the functions is still not yet ready to be introduced with 122, but right. for range of integers is. So range of functions, we still need to prepare our minds for what's coming up. But it is, it's interesting. Yeah. My, my only... Uh... Wish is that the range over integers would allow specifying two numbers so I could range from 5 to 10 or even from 20 to 12, you know, backwards. Um, but they chose not to add that. It'll still be a nice uh, shortcut for common loops. So you can look forward to that in 122. Yeah, I think most common loops starts with zero. zero exactly. Zero. Exactly. Another proposal that was accepted was a new package uh, called Go slash version. Uh, I don't think most of us are going to use this, but it's an interesting package to mention. With Go 1.21, they changed the version number schema to add the dot zero and maybe a few other things too. And this throws off a lot of tools. Have you ever had to parse a version, a Go version string before? I had to, and it was fine because it was just two numbers. But now we've got three numbers. <laughs> yes, and it's it's not quite Semver, although it's close to Semver, but not quite. So you can't just use a, an off-the-shelf Semver uh, package. But this proposal adds the Go version package, which will do that parsing for you. So you never have to bother with that again, which I think is is nice. I won't use it frequently, but when I do use it, I'll be really glad it's there. Yeah, I think most tools that are based on Go will need it and use it a lot. Whereas as a Go developer, you might not need it on your daily basis. Indeed, indeed. So another proposal was to uh, include the new interface for defining e-tags on web servers. Uh, e-tags are used to help with cache. The proposal was accepted by Rescox, and uh, we now have a new interface in IOFS, which exposes a, a file info and a function that hashes, returns the hash of a file. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty simple uh, change. I mean, it adds a single method called file hashes. The description on it is is uh, pretty precise in like how that hash should be calculated. I mean, it gives you some flexibility, but it's, it's not just like, give me something quick. You know, it, it describes which, which SHA algorithm you should use and, uh, and stuff like that to make it really obviously designed for, for e-tag serving, which is useful. It's a problem I've had to solve from scratch multiple times. So having this will definitely save me some effort the next time I have to do that. It's still, a proposal, it's still accepted. It's 
It's not flagged for 122. Yeah, we don't know when it'll be included. It, it might make it to 122. It's simple enough. Maybe it will, but it's not promised yet. So we might have to wait for 123 for that one. Well, I think that rounds us out for proposals. Um, of course, there were others, but these were the highlights. I do want to do a quick shout out. If you are in the Utah area, Go West Conference is happening today. If you're listening to the show and you're not at the conference, stop listening to the show and get your butt over to that conference. Hopefully they'll have some talks online soon that we can uh, share links to as well. I heard that they're giving away a Game Boy game that's written in Go. I couldn't find a link for the raffle, so I suppose you have to be there to enter. But that sounds pretty cool. A Game Boy game written in Go. That's neat. All right. We do have a couple of releases to mention this week, though. Pascal, do you want to talk about Golang CI Lint? I, I know you had a problem with the previous release, uh, 154. 155 is out now, too. What's happening in that in that world? So just a quick reminder, Golang CI Lint is a tool that is used to run several linters on your code format of a linters check. Everything is uh, standard and raise any warnings if you didn't catch an error or something like this. And Golang CI Lint is usually integrated on your CIs in GitLab, GitHub, uh, Jenkins. And they released 155 this week. The previous release was two months ago, I think, three months ago, 154. Mm-hmm. And I remember with 154, there was a big change that was hidden under the, the blanket. You, The DepGuard V2 was released and integrated. I think in 154, that's when I noticed the change. And DepGuard changed the behavior of your CI. You needed to have a DepGuard-specific configuration file, which I didn't have. And right. when I migrated to 154, I started having DepGuard issues. Hopefully, 155 doesn't introduce this, but I, I'm sure that they are aware of uh, these dependency changes. I think it's a little bit unfortunate that Golang CI Lint's version numbers don't necessarily reflect breaking changes in its dependencies, right? So in DepGuard or anything else, it has a breaking change. We just see a minor release uh, in Golang CI Lint. So you do have to be careful when upgrading this. Test it out first. Don't just push it to your CI and then hope everything's fine. You know, test it locally and make sure that the new version of Golang CI works. But I do try to keep up to date. And with DepGuard, it, I had the same thing. It bit me and I had to spend an hour finding the right config file format and, you know, patching my config stuff to make it work before I could, uh, could use it. I didn't have that problem with 155. And 155 does add a couple new linters. In particular, it adds one called slog lint, which is maybe useful if you're using the new uh, slog package in Go 1.21. And it also updates a whole bunch of the old linters. In particular, I noticed that Revive started reporting new errors that it wasn't reporting before. One of them I cared about and I fixed. One of them I didn't care about and I disabled. So it just goes to show, again, when you update your Golang CI lint, run it locally first. Make sure that you're happy with the results before you force it on your entire team or your entire company. One other release I'm going to mention, it's not one that's really taking the community by storm or anything like that. Uh, in fact, I don't think anybody even cares about it except me, but it's my open source package called Kivik. I just released version four yesterday. Uh, if you are into NoSQL databases uh, or document stores, Kivik is a Go SDK or Go library, client library for CouchDB. Most people these days are probably using MongoDB. They probably don't realize that Mongo got a lot of inspiration from CouchDB. And vice versa, CouchDB's borrowed some new ideas from Mongo as well. But if you want the open source sort of predecessor to MongoDB, CouchDB is one to check out. And if you're doing it in Go, you'll probably end up using the library I wrote, and I just released version 4 yesterday. I suppose I should mention the changes. I mean, just the fact that I released version 4 doesn't mean anything. Um, the main changes are in uh, making the API a little bit easier to use, especially when iterating over result sets from multiple queries. 
Um, I've also added uh, a command line tool, which uh, is pretty cool, I think, uh, to let you interact with CouchDB from the command line. So sort of replacing curl uh, to be a little friendlier way to do that. Pascal, I think you might want to round out the episode today. Uh, We have a couple of topics related to books, and I know that you are an author. Are you working on your first book or have you already written books in the past? This is my first ever book. First ever book. So you're an in-progress author. I am an in-progress author, and I'm more than that. I'm an in-progress co-author because the book I'm writing is a book we are writing. Two friends and ex-colleagues of mine, Donia and Alina, are writing this book about learning Go and good practices in Go. Uh, The book is called Learn Go Pocket Size Project, and it's published by Manning. We haven't finished it yet. We are working on chapter 10 out of 12, but you can already access it with the uh, MEEP program, which is an early access program at Manning. Uh, You get a discount and you get a full access to the book as it's written, and you can make comments on this as it's written. And we will integrate these comments. We've had great comments by people who've uh, bought the book, said, uh, oh, there's a typo there. Um, Please uh, explain me what this means. Very helpful comments as a writer to read. We also have discounts for listeners of this podcast. Oh, nice. Share a link uh, that can be accessed. And it's a, a link to the Manning Publisher website. So what made you decide to write this book? We initially, uh, we were contacted by Manning to be technical editors on their books. And they opened the door of, we don't have a book for new Garland programmers. How would you feel about writing one? All right. We weren't sure about anything. I mean, I've never <laughs> written a book. I've just read some. And we decided it would be a fun experience to do. And we jumped in. Uh, we've had great help from our development editor at Manning, Douglas. And we have a very precise and very helpful technical editor, Egan. And overall, it's something, well, it is a long process. Uh-huh. And it is a process that we are all three of us involved in which means that when one of us has something else to do, uh, there's always two other more that can catch up and continue writing the book, which if you feel though you've got your friends who are there for you, and that's great. Very cool. So uh, we'll have a link in the description to a discount code if you're interested in the book. Um, I can also recommend the book. I haven't read the whole thing since it's not written yet, but I did do a review of the book back in February or March, I think, of the three or four chapters that were available. And I was I was a big fan of it. So I'll put a link to that review also in the, in the show notes if you're interested. If you're not quite sure you want to buy the book, maybe that will convince you. But let's say that somebody's listening, they've already bought your book on the Meep program, and they're looking for more books. Uh, what can you recommend for these folks? Uh, there's a GitHub repo that lists several books, go books, that are available. It's maintained by Darius BS, and it's github.com slash darisbs slash gobooks. And it really has a list of books, depending on sorted by your level. So if you if you are no no in Go, you probably want to start with the starter books. And if you want something more advanced, there's a section for advanced books. And then there's a web development section. I think it's great to see someone collect all this information into one domain, one website. And then if you want something, you just need to go there and find the book that precisely speaks about what you want. One of the books in there that caught my eye is a book written in Persian. Oh, So someone is maintaining a, a book in Persian on the internet. And I think this is, this is great to see Go written for non-native English speakers. Mm-hmm. 
spreading the knowledge is, is always great. Awesome. Do you speak Persian or do you read Persian? Absolutely not. Yeah, me either. But I know some folks who do, so hopefully this will help them out. Well, that's a great resource. I'm, I'm adding it to my list of pages to check frequently. I think it will be a useful uh, thing for me personally, and maybe I'll find some new books to recommend on this show in the future too. I think that wraps it up for the news for this week. Thanks for joining us. Stick around, though. After the sponsorship break, we do have an interview that Shai and I recorded a few weeks ago with Yuho Nurminen about discovering security vulnerabilities in Go and sort of the, the career that goes into security. So if that's something that interests you, you will enjoy this interview. Stick around for that and hope to see you all next week. As I mentioned at the top of the program, this episode is sponsored by the Backend Banter podcast. Why is the podcast sponsored by a podcast? Well, we've actually had the host of Backend Banter on this show as a guest. You may remember Lane Wagner from Boot.dev. He is the host of the Backend Banter podcast, which is the only podcast dedicated to backend development technologies and careers. So if you're a backend developer, and honestly, which GoDevs aren't, maybe Andy Williams, uh, who hosted last week. He's the fine guy. So maybe maybe there's a few of you who aren't back-end devs, but most of you are probably back-end devs and would find this podcast to be completely relevant to you as well. Uh, they talk a lot about Go, but not only Go. It's, it's more just back-end, uh, which of course includes Go, but they also talk about Python and JavaScript and Rust and a few other things. So I encourage you to check out the Back-end Banter podcast, this week's sponsor of the Cup of Go podcast. And speaking of podcasts, Pascal, uh, how did you hear about the Cup of Go podcast? It's a very good question. I was listening to it. It was in my stream of podcasts that I'm listening to regularly and I am enjoying it. Thank you for having me today. And yeah, so I was happy to be invited uh, this week, jumping in. Wonderful. Which podcast player do you use, just out of curiosity? I am a Spotify person. Okay. Yeah. So uh, if you like Pascal, listen on Spotify, we'd love for you to leave a review, uh, especially if you like the show. But even if you don't, um, you can always leave negative comments too. We haven't gotten any yet, but we're still waiting for that first one. And share the podcast with a friend, with a colleague, with your pets. Put it on a loudspeaker outside your house so your neighbors can hear as, as they walk by, whatever. Uh, we like to share the, the podcast with others. And also a reminder that you can get some swag. We have Cup of Go mugs and stickers and really expensive wireless chargers that nobody's ever bought. But uh, it's print on demand. So, you know, it's easy to put to slap a logo on anything and then say, if you want it, we'll, you, we'll build it for you. Uh, but you can find all that over at uh, store.cupago.dev. You can find our contact details at cupago.dev. Uh, there you can find our email address, um, all the episodes, and little short bios of all of our hosts, including Pascal. If you're interested in learning more about him, there will be a bio on that uh, site too. Well, thanks, Pascal, for joining today. It's been a pleasure to, to meet you and uh, hope to see you again soon. Thank you for having me. I'll be listening again. All right. Welcome to our interview. Uh, I'm excited to have here with us Yuho, who has been instrumental in helping make Go a lot more secure than it would be otherwise. Unfortunately, Shai isn't with us right now. He may join us later. He was on the road at the time the interview started. So if he joins us, we'll welcome him otherwise. Yuho, would you give us an introduction? Tell us about who you are and what you do and how you're involved with Go quickly. Sure. Nice to be with you. So I work at a company called Metamost. We are a uh, Go software company, and we do a lot of different kinds of things with, with Go. I work as a security engineer there, and um, as part of the role at, at Mattermost, I've worked with the Go internals for, for a, a few years now. 
I reported a bunch of things to the Go security team. That's um, things like a couple of recent remote execution, remote code execution bugs, and um, some Stack Overflow bugs, and um, also some things related to XML parsing. Okay, so you said you're a security engineer. I think is what you said. Yeah. Um, are you specifically focused on security within the Go ecosystem, or is it broader than that at your work? Um, so I do product security, which covers basically all of application security. That's when, when it comes to matter, matter most, that's mostly Go because we are largely a Go company, mm-hmm. but we also have um, JavaScript, TypeScript, mobile applications written in, in React Native. So that's also TypeScript, but um, but also some, some native languages. And, and um, then we have desktop applications also written in, written in JavaScript. So, so there's a lot of area to cover, but um, all of our backend is Go. So all right. It's heavily Go focused, yeah. So it's not that you're looking for problems in Go. It's just that that that's kind of falls under the umbrella of what you do. Yeah, uh, that's basically. So yeah. so you report those because that's part of your day job. Awesome. So I'm curious, uh, just to, to get a little bit of background here. I think I think security is sort of a black box for a lot of people, including our list, many of our listeners. So I'd like to hear what got you interested in this idea of application security. Yeah, how did you get into that career? Um, I've been doing this um, professionally for for about 10 years now. I was originally doing software development back in the day, 15 years ago. Then um, I slowly got, got interested in, in the bad things you can do with software and the ways you can misuse software and got into security consulting and was doing uh, penetration testing for a couple of years. And from there, I, I landed at Mattermost doing software security for you know company internal products. Very cool. One thing about security, you just mentioned all the, you know, you're interested in the bad things you can do with software. Of course, if you're trying to improve security, your goal is to keep people from doing bad things. And I can imagine there's a tension here when you discover a potential bad thing, like a remote uh, code execution or something. How do you approach that in a way that doesn't give the bad guys access to the new information you discovered before the good guys can fix it? How do you, just generally speaking, how do you do that? And then maybe if it's different, how is it specifically handled on the Go project? So generally speaking, usually when you find um, issues in, in third-party software, there's some predefined way of, of reporting that to the authors of that software. It really varies a lot. Um, sometimes you have big companies with uh, really clearly defined processes, like um, a security advisories page or a website or, or, or maybe even a reporting form or a bug bounty program or, or something. Um, sometimes you have open source projects that are maintained by just some random guy somewhere Mm -hmm. and in that case you might have to look up the email address and and send an email and figure out how to best report the issue but usually the general rule is you report the issue in private somehow mostly by email Mm -hmm. and then you figure out what to do next and once the issue is fixed then then you go public with it yeah yeah and of course anybody who watches the go security releases closely probably notices this we get a pre-announcement a few days ahead of time sometimes a week ahead of time there's a security vulnerability being fixed on wednesday be prepared to upgrade on wednesday and then come wednesday we get the details so you know it's that's i think well in line with what you just described there um I'm curious to hear how you, like, what are the mechanics of finding one of these security problems? And maybe we want to look at a specific one. We mentioned one that made it into 1.21.1 before we started recording. CVE 2023-39-320, which was arbitrary code execution bug in the go.mod toolchain directive. How did you discover this? Uh, You know, were you looking for something like this or did you stumble upon it? How do you discover, what are the mechanics of finding a, a problem like this? 
So this was actually a bit different from from the way I usually find these bugs. Usually okay. I find these bugs um, when I'm working on something actively. Uh, we have a product feature that I'm I'm reviewing, and then then I it happens to use a Go internal API, and, and I dig into how that's implemented, and then I find an issue. This was not a feature I was actively working on because it was actually a new feature in Go, and we mm-hmm. weren't using it yet. Instead, I saw a bunch of buzz with our go- with uh, colleagues who were, were excited about the new feature and uh, um, telling me that um, it's really cool we have this new Go feature that will allow you to upgrade your tool chain without doing anything. And that immediately struck me as something that's really dangerous because mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, downloading software automatically is is probably dangerous. And that's why I started looking into it and um, I reviewed the implementation and, and noticed that there were some issues there. Okay. So you just sort of, it didn't quite pass the sniff test until you went digging in this case. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the more typical example. Um, I don't know if you have a specific uh, CVE you want to talk about or just generally, like when you see a code review or something and and you dig then, how is that different? What's the process in in those cases? Um, Usually the process is is we have a pull request in our product and um, I'm reviewing the pull request and um, there's a Go internal API or, or some some API we're using, and I don't quite understand how it works or what it does internally. And then I just go digging just to understand that the, or make sure that the application level code is, is working correctly, that it's doing what it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll run into something that's unexpected or unusual and then dig deeper and find more issues. Do you generally find a way to exploit these bugs or you just find the potential for the bug or the security exploit? I mean, like in this case that we just talked about with the uh, remote code execution, did you actually make it execute remote code or you just found that, oh, it looks like this could be possible, it should be fixed? I usually try to actually exploit the bug. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it can be really difficult to determine whether something is actually a security issue or not Mm -hmm. if you don't go all the way and exploit the issue. So, um, for example, if I see that this thing is not validating inputs quite as well as it probably should, I don't necessarily know whether it will be a security issue. And the thing with uh, reporting sort of potential security issues is that it creates a lot of work for the maintainers. And um, the maintainers probably either have to verify the issue and make sure that it's actually exploitable, or they would have to trigger a security release without confidently knowing that it's a security issue, which would be, again, moving more workload to the consumers of the software, so mm-hmm. Go developers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I try to do sort of verification myself to make sure it's done as early on as possible so that there's the least possible amount of workload for other people. This is sort of less important when you're dealing with mature projects and, and big companies. So, for example, the Go standard library has a security team working behind it so they know what they're doing but when you're dealing with um individual open source contributors and and individual open source maintainers they might not even have the security expertise to verify something so you really have to have to demonstrate the security issue before you can report it that makes sense and that brings up a a topic i I think is worth talking about what is your relationship like with the maintainers let's say specifically the go team but in general what what kind of relationship do you have with the companies or the organizations you're reporting these bug fixes to do they like you do they are they annoyed about all the all the security problems i'm pretty sure i can be an annoyance as well um but usually usually the response is really good i haven't really had any bad experiences with anyone 
uh, probably ever. And the Go security team is is particularly professional and nice and and good to work with. So yeah, only only positive things to say about them. Wonderful. I don't. Uh, I I wouldn't say I really have a particularly close relationship or anything. I I don't you know message with the people directly. Usually, I just go by the process. And mm-hmm. uh, there's a bunch of names I recognize um, on that team that respond regularly. But um, it's going by the process and and reporting the things that I find. Yeah, really good. How long does it generally take from the time that you discover a vulnerability until it's public and and fixed? Or or does it vary a lot? If we're talking about Go security and Go vulnerabilities, uh, standard library vulnerabilities, those usually get fixed relatively quickly. So it's it's a matter of, um, it could be a month. Month is a rough, good rough estimate or ballpark figure. But um, when you're talking about vulnerabilities in general in all kinds of software, it it varies really a lot. Sometimes you might see someone fixes a vulnerability in a day and pushes out the release and and that's it. And sometimes it might take half a year or or two years. Okay, yeah. (laughs) That's a little bit scary if a vulnerability takes two years to fix, but uh, hopefully at least the bad actors don't know about it in that meantime. And Shai has joined the call. Welcome, Shai. I guess you were on the road. Glad to see you here. Yeah, thank you. Wonderful. So, Juho, first of all, sorry for me, Leighton. Thanks for jumping on our podcast. One thing I wanted to ask is, you know, there are two sides to uh, security. You can find vulnerabilities and report them, or you can find vulnerabilities and exploit them or sell them. And it's no secret that selling them is very lucrative. So I'm wondering... What's the reasoning behind being on the on the blue side instead of the red side? I don't think it's any secret that working on the blue side is pretty lucrative too. So, so um, I get paid well, but also selling the vulnerabilities has its risks. So either you're actually doing something illegal and uh, you have to deal with those risks, or you're um, you're dealing with companies that might sell them forward or or might um, use them to you know suppress people and, and do evil things um, and you have to sort of uh, rationalize that to yourself and deal with that so um, well I, I commend you for that it's a strong uh, moral position did you ever have um, you know people reach out to you looking for uh, this kind of stuff I'm mostly asking for the benefit of our audience because I, I know this is a pretty interesting field that not a lot of people know very deeply if, if anyone's Offered to buy, but reach out to try and buy vulnerabilities or ask you to research a specific application or something like that. Yeah, I, I get that occasionally. Yeah, I get that occasionally, but it's not super common. It's not like a weekly thing or anything. But there's been a couple of instances where um, people have reached out. Specifically, I mean, um, I used to do a lot of research related to web browsers, and that's obviously a very hot area. And I would get an occasional someone reaching out and asking if I could, if I would want to work with them to, you know, exploit this specific web browser and explain the scenario where, where they need the vulnerabilities for that, that specific web browser. I never, never went in for any of those, but I've had the offers, yeah. Cool. What was it like being the first uh, AppSec engineer at a company like Mattermost? Usually, you know, application security engineers, you know, you have two types. You have the type that allows everything and then tries to patch it later. 
or the type that says I'm blocking everything and everything has to go through me. Which uh, which type of application security engineer were you? Um, even though we had we um, didn't have full time application security personnel before me, um, we did have some security processes and we had some people with security expertise. So I I wasn't sort of entirely starting from scratch. But um, instead, I, I sort of jumped into something that was very poorly defined and, and very sort of loose and started working on incremental improvements. Basically, some of the first things I, I started working on was, was reviewing the code base and making sure that there aren't any, any sort of major holes in the existing code and then slowly getting familiar with the code base and, and figuring out what the best ways to move forward are. And then um, implementing processes around code reviews and, and, and um, security releases and, and those types of things. Generally, the approach has been to block as few things as possible because it's really easy for security to be sort of a, seen as a sort of an evil that's, that's blocking everything and, and no one wants to work with security. And we try to avoid that. Yeah, it sometimes feels like uh, it's not everybody rowing in the same direction in a boat, even though it's uh, it, that's how it should be. Some people should row to the left, some people should row to the right, and then the ship can go uh, forward. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Uh, but if I am an engineer, let's say uh, Jonathan and I are in a company together. That, w- that would be funny with just uh, two people talking about how they should write their Go, but not writing any <laughs> Go code ever. But let's say we're both the uh, engineers in the R&D. What could we do? to you know, make our application security engineers at our company feel better or do their job better. Because uh, it's always like, oh, as an application security engineer, you know, I really want to, to not be in the way and try to not block and try to help and try whatever. But most of our listeners are probably not application security engineers. They're just engineers in companies that have other application security engineers. And how could they help them, you know, like fulfill their role in the company? And, you know, specific, even specifically, we already know the backend is Go and we, because that's the sort of uh, audience we're talking to here. So uh, there's a handful of sort of easy things you can, can do if you're starting from scratch. And um, one of the easiest things is if you're using something like GitHub to host your code, use the automation that they provide. So use, for example, the automatic dependency upgrades. Uh, there's multiple options that you can use. So make sure your, your dependencies are up, up to date and um, do code reviews. Even if you're not a security expert and you don't have any security experts doing code reviews, do at least the sort of general code reviews for all new changes. That's important because if you're just committing directly to master or, or doing pull requests, but not actually reviewing them, then then you're probably doing something very wrong. Mm-hmm. And if you're if you want to inject some security into your code review process uh, today, what resource can you recommend? Um, there's a bunch. Um, I would recommend first of all doing uh, asking Jonathan to review it, <laughs> just because I'm not a security expert either. I'm sure you'll find <laughs> some reasons and some holes. But let's say Jonathan isn't available at my company right now. You know what resource can you recommend to inject some security into my process? There's a bunch. There's um, um, a number of sort of ed- educational websites that you can use. Um, one of the best ones, especially if you're doing web applications, is a company called Portswigger that they have a commercial tool that they sell, but they also have this educational website that's, that's called, I think, the Portswigger Academy. And that's that's a really good website to go through. They have free resources there and, and almost all of it is, is available without any sort of login or sign up. But um, if you sign up you... not sponsored but we will put the yeah. link in the show notes uh but hey portswigger if you want to sponsor us <laughs> uh, 
We're available at capago.dev. So I'm curious, uh, t- taking this sort of advice section of the, the interview a little bit farther, if somebody listening is interested in becoming an application security expert, do you have any advice you can offer them how they could get started down that path? Um, there's a, there's um, a number of ways you, ways you can approach it. Um, if you're a software developer and you're, um, you've done that for a while, just start thinking about how you write code and how that code could be misused. Then start familiarizing yourself with, with the different types of uh, security vulnerabilities and exploits. For example, going through Portswigger Academy or, or any of the other resources like OWASP or, or any of the other well-known resources. Mm-hmm. And um, have the sort of mindset of how could this be exploited? How could this be misused? And um, um, a really good way to get started these days is, is getting into bug bounties. So a lot of companies have bug bounty programs where you can report security issues and then even potentially get some money for it. So get into those and, and start looking into other people's software. Have you done that in the past? You said that being on the blue team could be lucrative. Is this part of what you're talking about? Um, I've done some of that, yeah. I've never really done it sort of actively or, or, or sort of for the money. Mostly I've reported things to bug bounty programs because they're the sort of main way to report things to some companies. So, um, but yeah, for example, I've, I've reported a bunch of issues to GitHub and a number of other, other companies. I'm pretty sure I saw you on uh, HackerOne as well, right? Or am yeah. I imagining? Yeah, HackerOne is, is one of the sort of biggest platforms for bug bounties and that's where most companies are. Uh, there's a number of others as well, but HackerOne is probably the biggest yeah. one. For regulation purposes, you have to set up some uh, bug reporting program and most companies go with hell and it's just the easiest. Do you think that uh, if I want to get into, you know, continuing on that question, if I want to get into those like bug bounties and and start learning, you know, academy and whatever, do I have to go through uh, reverse engineering and like binary exploitation as well? Or can people do just web security now without knowing, you know, assembly and, and opening IDA and starting to look at bits and bytes. You can definitely do just web security um, and you can specialize in any number of ways. You, you don't have to do web security at all at all if you don't want to and you don't have to do any binary exploitation at all if you don't want to. I've never done any binary exploitation professionally. I've had a go at it, but I've never, never used it on a job. So um, I've always mostly focused on web-related things. But yeah, you can you can approach... Uh, security in a number of ways, and you can approach application security in a number of ways. You can focus on mobile applications. You can focus on desktop applications, and um, you can focus on a specific language if you want to. That's what my my wife does actually. Android research. Cool. <laughs> it is cool, but it's I I if you want to, you know your room to look really cool while you're researching, I highly recommend mobile research because you go into the room and there's like a whole bunch of devices and they all have the same app open and. It's, moving and emulator. Interesting. Pretty cool. Funny. So, uh, Joe, what areas are you looking or you think we should be looking in Go right now? Where are the soft, uh, squishy areas with all the vulnerabilities? Other than John's code, of course. <laughs> <laughs> one, one of the things that where there's a lot of things happening right now is um, the HTML slash template package. So, so there's a number of proposals open currently. Um, for example, there's one that um, intends to add support for JavaScript template resource, which currently is very limited. But uh, there's a proposal to add full support for that. And um, that's a very tricky thing to implement correctly. So, so something to definitely pay attention to. There's another 
proposal to rewrite the implementation entirely because the current current implementation of the HTML slash template package is it's old and it's written in a way that's not ideal. It's difficult to verify the implementation and it's difficult to correctly add new features. So so there's a lot happening related to HTML templating currently. And and the reason you're saying we should look at that is because it has a lot of activity or because, you know, parsing and templating always has vulnerabilities? Parsing and templating always has vulnerabilities. That's, that's a given. But um, specifically, that's uh, an area that should, you know, get attention right now is because there's a lot happening there right now. Cool. Well, everybody is working on that proposal and writing that code. Be careful, Juho is coming for you. <laughs> so I'd like to jump back to a topic we talked about earlier before we close this out, and that was the uh, the toolchain directive arbitrary execution uh, vulnerability you discovered that was that was fixed in Go 1.21.1. We just talked very briefly about it, but I, I'd be curious to hear a little more about the details. What was the nature of this vulnerability, and, and why was it so scary? So um, basically, the thing is, there's this feature that allows uh, Go since 1.21 to select the tool chain that it uses automatically. So when you run, for example, Go build, it will look at your go.mod file and see which Go versions are defined there and potentially download a new Go tool chain and use a different tool chain than the one you actually have installed on, locally on your computer. And um, the issue is that Go 1.21 introduces a new line in the go mod file and the go work file which is the toolchain and um, the toolchain allows you to specify an exact version of the toolchain you want to use but it also allows you to specify custom toolchains so you can specify for example you can specify that you want to use go 1.21.7 dash my company so you can implement your own or, or fork, your, fork the Go toolchain and use your own company internal fork. And that's the intended user set, yes. Um, and um, it was intended to be uh, used in a safe way. So, so um, it will. The way it looks up the toolchain is first it looks into um, whether you have that specific toolchain already installed uh, locally. So it looks at your path and sees whether the binary is there. Um, if it's not in the path, um, it will look into uh, places where where um, the toolchain gets installed. And if it's not already cached there, then it will look at remote locations. But the way the path lookup was implemented was using um, OS slash exec dot look path, which is slightly unintuitive because it will not only look into the path, but also potential potentially subdirectories of the current working directory. Because if if the path you give to that function contains a slash, then it will it will just skip looking at path entirely and just look into the current working directory. Why does it use OSXec instead of like native Go code, like import OS and path and whatever? Sorry, that's uh, that's the OS slash exec package, but it's the look path function in that package. So it is Go code. It's oh. Go code, but it's. Uh, it's yeah. It's part of the OSXec package, and um, yeah. So so look path is is a function that's slightly unintuitive, and there's another proposal there to to make that more intuitive and and remove that functionality of skipping the the path lookup and and using the path directly. And the the other issue besides using look path uh, was was that the suffix in the Go version specified on the toolchain line 
was not being sanitized. So it should not contain slashes in the first place. And that's that's how it was fixed. So currently, the since since go one twenty one point one, you can't use a slash in the suffix of the Go toolchain version. Like we said, parsing is always worse than vulnerabilities. <laughs> Fascinating. So it's essentially a one line fix. I mean, I, I don't know if literally, but but conceptually, it was it was yeah, just basically yeah. The one line fix, yeah. It's always those mundane details, as they say in Office Space. I'm wondering if uh, I can create my my custom tool chain Go point one when twenty two comes out. I'll do like Go one dot twenty two dot zero dash backtick or one equals one <laughs> drop <laughs> table <laughs> users. Try everything. <laughs> Yeah, drop table students. Awesome. Well, we've been talking for a while. I think this has been a very informative interview. I hope our audience enjoys it. How can people reach out to you if they're interested, if they're or interested in following your work? Um, and if if the answer is don't, then we'll just cut this part out. But <laughs> you can definitely reach out to me. Um, I'm on a bunch of the socials. Um, I'm not super active on any of them, but I'm I'm on Twitter or whatever it's called these days. Yeah. Um, I'm also on Mastodon on infosec.exchange and I'm on GitHub. You can probably find my email address there. Okay, cool. We'll have links to all those uh, in, in the show notes um, so you can reach out to Yuho if you like. As you know, we like to round out our interviews with two questions. The first one is, uh, you've been forced, you're told that you must remove some feature from Go. What would you like to see Go? Um that's a tricky one. One thing, um, if I if I had to remove something, I would probably look into places where there's sort of high complexity and, and high risk. And one of those types of places is the image decode, decoding libraries. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so image slash uh, GIF, image slash JPEG, those types of things. And um, I would re- not necessarily scrap them entirely, but move them outside of the standard library. Whoa. The issue with those is is not necessarily that, um, I mean, they're, they're super useful. Everyone uses them. But the thing is, if you have the question, uh, I, I have this image file, is it safe to decode this image file? That's a really difficult question to answer. Mm-hmm. Because... Uh, you don't mean like safe for work. You mean <laughs> safe for my uh, CPU. Yeah, safe for my CPU, safe for my memory, memory usage. And um, <laughs> those are the main ones. Well, Andy and the Fine community will be really sad uh, that you kicked out uh, image code from the standard library. They're all pushing for more, uh, you know, application uh, features, like desktop application features. But now you, you can make it up to everyone. What feature would you add to Go from like another language or, you know, a library or whatever, if you could pick anything you wanted? I'm not sure if this, this counts as adding a feature, but um, I, would, I would change one sort of subtle thing and the thing I thing I'd change is um, the way the stack is handled, and especially stack overflows. Currently, if you overflow the stack, you'll get a fatal error, and the program will crash entirely. And what I'd change is I would make that a panic instead, so that it can be recovered from. Because currently, if you run into a stack overflow, you just crash, and there's no way to handle that. But there's also no technical reason not to be able to handle that. So, so it's just that they didn't want to implement it because it's complex. Wow, cool. That's a first. People have been, uh, you know, in, in the answers to these questions over the last, like, I know, 10 months that uh, Jonathan and I have been asking them, how to deal with the stack, that's a first one. <laughs> I like that level of, uh, of detail and thought. 
Awesome. Well, Yuho, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for sharing some of your wisdom. I hope that uh, people will uh, start to take security a little more seriously. Not that everyone doesn't, but you know, there's always room to, to improve in that area. So yeah, thanks for coming on. I hope to see you around. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, man. Keep up the good work. Find more vulnerabilities. Thanks.